Well, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. And because it's a short chapter, let's go ahead and uh, read it together. Or let me read it to you, actually, and then we'll go back, okay? We'll also be taking communion this, uh, this, this evening. So let me just back up two verses, uh, a couple verses, into chapter 23. Remember, David is on the run. It says, but a messenger came to Saul, right when Saul's about to close in on David and his men. It says in verse 27 of chapter 23, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore, Saul returned from pursuing David, went against the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape. And then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds at Engedi, and that's the place that we just looked at, and so you kind of got an idea. So let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 24. It says, Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and, and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. <laughs> I like that. That's, the, that's what Engedi means, is the rock. Uh, rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. And David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. And then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut, cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. Obviously, he was completely unaware and oblivious to how close he was to death. And uh, so David, verse 8, also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm. Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see... Yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. And so it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And then he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? 
Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know, indeed, that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me now by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. And so David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So they went back into these caves in this area that we were just looking at just a few minutes ago. Let's go back to verse 1 there. So it's interesting, you know, David, he, he, he continues to follow, or excuse me, Saul continues to follow David, and when Saul wasn't fighting the perennial enemy of Israel, which was the Philistines, he was fixated on scouring the earth really to kill David. So it was almost like a part-time job. When he wasn't fighting the real enemy, he was going after David. And it's interesting that even though God had, uh, God had Samuel anoint David to be king, it would be a number of years, as you know, before David would actually come to the throne And it was this time of great difficulty that God used to form and shape the character of David. As he is running, as he's concerned for his own life, there's something about being in distress for a very long time that really grates and it really forms the character of any person. Because you go through a lot of things in your mind. All of a sudden, your life becomes a lot more precious. Life itself becomes more precious because you realize that you're the hunted and so David, uh, God was using this incident in, in his life to really form his character because he would be one of the best kings. He made his mistakes, there's no doubt, but he would be one of the greatest kings of Israel. And in order to do that, God had to bring him through great trials and great tribulations to bring him to this place. And remember that the forming of a character of any man or woman It takes time. It's not something that happens overnight. I think we all know that. You know, when you think about uh, Moses, after all, the best teaching that that the world could offer, the greatest schools that Moses went with when he was young in Pharaoh's home, that God would have to prepare him 40 years wandering in the desert, preparing him, tearing him down, basically just breaking him down so that God could finally use him again to do the thing that God had always desired to do to cause Moses to be this deliverer for his people. And this was a 40-year preparation. (coughs) Excuse me. A 40-year preparation. It's often been said that the greater the work that the Lord has for a man or woman, the greater the preparation that's needed in that person. And I believe that's true. Because God needs to do the work inside of a heart to prepare a heart for what he has. And he's preparing you. He's preparing you. He has been preparing you for the things that you're doing right now. Your, your ministry may be not only your own family, but it may be the people in your own home, your family. <clears throat> but nonetheless, the Lord has been preparing. I know that in my own life, the Lord had prepared me for 23 years. I didn't even know I was being prepared. But he is. He's preparing each of us. And and be willing to do what the Lord would have you to do. So notice it says in verse 2 that Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel. And he went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats, which is this place in Gedi, the spring of the young goat. And um, again, it's a wonderful place. 
and a great place to hide. Uh, so he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs, and David and his men were staying in the recesses. So Saul, some believe he was going in there to take a nap. Um, others believe he was going in there to relieve himself, and I believe that was probably the case. And so while he's in there, he lays down his robe and he goes over to another place, which is very common, to be away from your own clothing. And he would do his business and take a shovel and cover it up. And while he's doing that, David and the men are kind of in the dark recesses of the, of the cave. And David cuts off a, a, a piece of his robe. And, and again, in this area, there's tons of these kinds of caves. And some can hold and accommodate uh, a couple hundred men very easily. Um, many of them have collapsed now, but there's still caves back there that um, many can fit in. And so it says, the men of David said to him, this is your lucky day, David. <laughs> I will deliver, you know, the Lord is going to deliver Saul into your hand. And so David arose and he secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This may not seem like a big deal to you, but a robe to a Jew meant something. Uh, it's actually called a, a, a zitziot, I believe is the pronunciation. And it's a hem that goes around the robe of, of Jewish men. And in Numbers 15, God commanded Moses to tell the people of Israel to make a blue borders on their garment. And, um, and so they would do that, and it would remind them, the blue hem would not only remind them that they were destined for heaven, but of the commandments of the God of heaven. And so that was a reminder for them and a very practical understanding. And, and some of them would tie uh, tassels all around them, you know, 613 perhaps, you know, for the number of laws and things that the Jews had made. And, um, and the bigger the hem, sometimes that, that, that meant the richer the person. And so there was significance to this hem, and David cuts it off. And in cutting off this fringe, David was saying, in a sense, that Saul's pedigree, his position, his authority, were to be given to him. And that's why David would say afterwards, it smote his heart that he did that. He shouldn't have done that because he knew what, he, what, what, what that meant. And David didn't want to do that. He, he thought about it afterwards. Have you ever done something and you realized you, you regretted it afterwards? I think we all have. <laughs> that's just part of being human, isn't it? You do something and then you realize, oh, if I could just go back and catch those words and bring them back to me. If I could only undo what I did. Every one of us has had those things, those kinds of events in our life. And that was really what happened to, to David. So it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe off, or a, a portion of it anyway. And you've you got to understand, this was I called this message uh, 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 the proving of David. Because having Saul so close, the man who's been hunting him for years, and to have him so close would be easy to just snuff him out. And he didn't even have to do it himself. The blood could have been on his men. He could have just walked away and went outside and, you know, got a drink of water or, 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 or did something else and let his men take care of it. But he didn't. He restrained the men. And this was a great test of David's character and also of his authority over the men who were with him. Because, again, he not only resisted, but he resisted the men as well. And this is what is called, folks, a clear and undefiled conscience. I love that. Clear and undefiled. Do you want a clear and undefiled conscience? How do you get a conscience that's clear and undefiled? Well, I can tell you it starts with the Word of God. It starts with you bathing yourself in the Word of God. It takes prayer. It takes a, 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 a purpose 
It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen just by putting yourself in neutral. You can never go in neutral as Christians. We always have to be moving forward or we're moving backward. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. But David had a clear and an undefiled conscience. Are you in a situation like David, maybe where you're, you're, it's bringing you to an end of yourself? Maybe you're not in that position now. Maybe you've been through something that has brought you to the end of yourself. Some, something, someone, some circumstances just grating against you, and you're just like, oh, God, if I could just get through this, I would do anything for you. I think we've all said that at some point. I know I have. I've made all these boasts to the Lord. Lord, if you would just get me out of this, I'll do this. And then he gets me out of it, and I go my own way. Literally, that's happened. And he's always gotten the better of me. But as we pray for patience and godly character, I believe the only way to accomplish this is through difficulty and hardship. Isn't it? The lessons we learn in the valley are the things of our life. Those are the instruments through which God uses to mold and to shape us into the men and women God wants us to be. There's no shortcut. There's no cliff's notes. There's no way of, of shortening that process. We, we have to go through it as Christians. And God will see to it. If you ask for patience, how can my patience grow unless I'm put in a place where I have to exercise patience? If I want to be a godly man or a godly woman, I, I've got to allow God to chip away that stuff. It never comes easy, folks. But with the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And don't let the world get you down when you find yourself getting really despondent and really discouraged because of all the things you're going through. Understand that God is working, especially in those times. Because anybody can be happy. Anybody can have circumstances where everything is going well. Anybody can have happiness in that regard. But to actually know God through the trial, through the difficulties, and to understand that he's working, do you understand that's the stuff of Christianity? That's where we are at. Don't be discouraged when you go through difficulties. In fact, the James and Peter, they all said the same thing. Don't be discouraged when you go through various trials and temptations. This is just part and parcel for being a Christian, for being a child of God. You're going to go through it. God's going to be rooting up. He's going to be exposing. And all the while he's doing that, he's, 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 he's putting stuff into you, the good stuff. He's rooting out the bad. He's plucking up and tearing down, and he's building up underneath. Does that make sense? He's doing it. He's doing it in all of you. He's doing it in me. This year has been the most difficult time in my entire existence. God has been doing that. He's been doing so many things on so many different levels. I, I literally am just... I look back and I'm just like, how did I do it? How did I make it? And God's just saying, it was me. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind. You were the one sustaining me and my wife and my family. But these lessons that we learn in the valley, these are the things that God uses. See, Jesus wants us to be more like him, doesn't he? We have to be conformed to his image. We have to be... Uh, sanctified. Sanctification is a daily thing. And unfortunately, the greatest lessons in our life seem to come through pain and suffering, not when everything is going well. Can you relate to that? It really is true. So don't be discouraged when you go through that. 
In verse 6, um, and he said to his men, David did, he said, the Lord forbid that I should do anything to my master, the Lord's anointed. Notice David referred to him as his Lord, meaning his master. David was not confused about who the Lord really was. But David also knew he was a man under authority. And while Saul was still king, he was still a subordinate to Saul. And David was happy to be there until the Lord moved and removed Saul. But it wasn't going to be at the hand of David. It could have been. It could have been at the hand of David. We just saw it. We're going to see there's going to be another opportunity two chapters from now where David's going to have another opportunity to do the very same thing. And he doesn't do it. He waits upon the Lord. And that's a good lesson for us, to wait upon the Lord. David knew that murder was sin, and especially a king of Israel. God had anointed him, David, to be king through Samuel, and he knew it was just a matter of time. And it wasn't for him to, to, to hasten the project. God is able to do these things. Seriously, God is able to do all these things in our life. A lot of times it just takes us to take our hands off the steering wheel, and it may take time for God to accomplish what he wants without you getting in the way. <laughs> and believe me, folks, he will do it. If he's promised it to you, if he's doing something and you have that unction that he's doing something, get your hands off the steering wheel and let him work because he does a much better job. And you might have to wait a little bit longer, but when it comes to pass, it's going to be undeniable. And in the process, you are being prepared for whatever it is that he had called you to do anyway. So everybody wins here. Nobody loses. I love that. You know, David, he had this wonderful heart, and that's what made him a great man. You know, under the same circumstances, Saul would have taken David's life. He would have done it. But David waited again upon the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 7 through 9, David, writing this psalm, he says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Isn't that, doesn't that sound like the Beatitudes? Doesn't that sound like Jesus in Matthew chapter 5? It is, it's like an Old Testament Beatitude. And again, the ends never justify the means. David knew he was to be king. This was his moment. He could have just done Saul in. He could have had somebody else do it. But he waited on the Lord in his timing, in his way. And David knew it was not his place to put his hand against the king. He knew that the battle belonged to the Lord. The battle belonged to the Lord. Isn't that exactly what David said to Goliath out in the field? In chapter 17 of, of, this, of this book, remember when he, he was out there in the field talking to Goliath, and what did he say to him? He says, then all the assembly, he's talking to, um, uh, to Goliath, saying that he's going to take his head off of his shoulders, and he's going to feed his body to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. The battle's the Lord's. It always has been. And it's good for me to know that. It's good for me to know that. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. Let God take care of it. He does a much better job, and you won't go to jail. I like that. Can I get an amen? Yeah.
If we were in a Baptist church, I would say, can I get a witness? So, so verse 7. So David, he restrained his servants, and Saul inevitably got up from the cave, went his way, and so David came after him, and he says, my Lord, the king, and Saul, in unbelief, he's like, I just came from that place. I hear David's voice. Oh, my goodness. I was that close to him, and I could have killed him. Oh, wait. I was that close to him. He could have killed me. It's starting to dawn on him. And so David arose and went out to the cave. He said, My Lord, the king. And when Saul stood, he looked behind him, and David stooped. Notice, he bows to the king. This man who was causing him so much grief. Are you able to do that with somebody who's seeking your life? I mean, honestly, think about it. Unless the Lord has control of our hearts, we are capable of doing a number of evil things. Don't ever think because you're a Christian that you have been walking with the Lord for some time that these things are beyond you. Because given the right circumstances and the right amount of pressure, you'd be surprised what any one of us would do in in a right circumstance or in the wrong circumstance under the right amount of pressure. We would all shock ourselves because I don't know my own heart. Do you know your own heart? Don't nod your head because you'd be lying. None of us really know our own hearts. I don't know how I'm going to respond in a circumstance. Do you? A circumstance you've never been in, do you know exactly how you're going to respond? I really don't know. I can talk a big game if I want, but I know in my heart I have no idea until the moment comes. And then the grace is there or it's not. (laughs) Follow me? So David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? David here proved that the rumors and the lies were not true because Saul was still breathing. The fact that he was still breathing <laughs> proves that David, that these, all these things were rumors and lies that Saul was listening to. And we need to be very careful about hearsay and rumors in the church. Many friends have been wounded. Many friendships have been destroyed because of gossips because of these kinds of things. In Psalm 22, verse 12, David says, Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. And you know, David, no doubt, was in great company as he was being falsified, and he was being um, ridiculed and lied about. And again, don't be surprised if you, being an ambassador of Jesus Christ, if this happens to you, that probably means that you're probably doing the right thing. If the world is against you and you're doing what God wants you to do, chances are you're doing the right thing. I would get nervous if you're doing the thing for God and everyone's applauding you and the the whole world is giving you, uh, supplying you money and, and for you and saying, you know, you're such a great guy and, man, your ministry is so wonderful. You know, the, the United Way is now given to you and, you know, the, um, you know, the open societies, you know, from, you know, George Soros, he's even given money to your ministry. You know, you're such a great guy. Your ministry's so awesome, you know. Do you have your show yet? Do you have your, a television show yet? We'll pay for that too. When the world applauds you, you'd better think about why. <laughs> because if you're really walking the walk and doing what God wants you to do, the world is not going to be so happy with you. So don't be surprised if those things happen. 
Jesus in the, in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's true. David was going to be lied about. Jesus was lied about. Hey, you're in great company if you're being lied about today. If you're trying to do the right thing and you're trying to let God use you and you find that your co-workers, all they're doing is gossiping and backbiting and, and, and doing all this nasty, you know, all this stuff, you're probably doing the right thing. And what will you do? Say evil about them too? Or will you bless those who despitefully use you? What did Jesus say in John's gospel? He says, if the world hates you, and he's speaking to his disciples in the upper room, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. But if you were of the world, the world would love its own. If you were of the world, the world would love you. It would applaud you. George Soros would be contributing to your ministry. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It hates you. You're in good company. Can you do it with a smile on your face even though everyone hates you or a a handful of people hate you? I would rather have the whole world hate me and have the smile of God. Seriously. That's really, shouldn't it make our hearts settle that night when we put our head on the pillow finally at the end of the day? I really don't care what, I mean, I do care what people think, but not too much. I'm really, care, I'm really concerned about what God thinks. If I did the right thing, and I know I did the right thing, I, I, people can tell me everything they want. It doesn't matter to me. And pray that we all get to that place, too, if we're not there already. And we don't have to be arrogant and nasty about it. It's just you've got to know who, you're, who, who it is that you're really accountable to. We're accountable to him, nobody else. And if I please him, praise the Lord. Amen? So verse 10, Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you out of my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And again, what an excellent spirit David had, and unlike that of Saul. Again, you know, if the tables were turned, David would be dead. And while Saul was glad to be alive, it's true, he was. He was very glad to be alive. David's righteousness in this act would ultimately fuel Saul's jealousy even further. Because again, in chapter 26, we're going to see, you know, so as, as we read this uh, dialogue between David and Saul, and as we hear Saul kind of in a lucid moment kind of realizing what a fool he had, he's, he had been, Understand when you hear this that it would be just the wind would blow a little bit differently and Saul would be off again chasing David again. So you take his words with a grain of salt. And isn't that unfortunate that you can't trust people's words? There used to be a time in our country's history where a man's word was his bond. He could tell you, and in most businesses back in the 1800s, they could shake their hand and say, it's a done deal. And they wouldn't have to be lawyers involved. They wouldn't have to draw up these contracts and, you know, in the Greek or in the Latin, you know. <laughs> but now things are, you can't trust anybody. You can't trust anything they say. It's an unfortunate thing. Notice at the end of verse 10 where, you know, he says, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord. 
for he is the Lord's anointed. Underline those two words, Lord and Lord's. You'll notice that they're one's capitalized and one's not. And I love that. He says, David said to Saul, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord. He's speaking of, of, of Saul. And this word is Adon, which is where we get the word Adonai. But it's really just like an owner, a master, a controller. So David is admitting, Lord, you know, Saul, you're still over me. I'm still a subordinate. But then he goes on and he says, for he, speaking of Saul, is the Lord's anointed. That's a whole different word. That's the word Yahweh or Jehovah. And that is the covenant-keeping God. That is God the Father. And so a bit, very big difference. Can you see the order of things? God is over all things. And then there's Saul. <laughs> and then there's David and others. It's always good to understand. You know, let's be prayerful, you know, and mindful of this, even with our local and our federal governments. For the powers that be are what? They're ordered by God. They're there. He put them there. And it'd be good for us to obey them, to, you know, unless, it, unless the laws go against, uh, you know, us gathering in churches and gathering, we've got to do what the Lord has called us to do. But for the most part, it's just an inconvenience for us sometimes when something happens. But we need to obey the laws, and we, you know, within, within the reason, you know. I think you understand what I'm saying, Right? He says, moreover, my father, see, see the, the, the corner of your robe in my hand, I cut it off. And so David, at this point, he really is, his heart smote him again because of what he had done. And, he, and now he turns it around and uses it as a means to prove to Saul, look, if I really wanted to kill you, I wouldn't be having this piece of your robe in my hand. I'd have your head like I did with Goliath. But no, Saul, I just got a piece of it. I, have, I don't have anything against you. I have no beef with you, man. <laughs> right? To put it in the vernacular of today, I've got no beef with you. Why are you seeking me like a, like a gazelle? Like a lion chasing a gazelle? But notice in verse 12, let the Lord be judged between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand, notice again, he, I shall not be against you. And I, I can't help but compare this statement of David's with the statement with what Saul had told Jonathan. You recall in, in 1 Samuel 20, just a couple of chapters ago, Saul in one of his rages, what does he tell he says, send and bring David to me, for he shall surely die. And this was after he made the covenant with his son Jonathan in, verse, in chapter 19, verse 6, where um, Jonathan is basically pleading for David's life, saying, Dad, why are you against him? He's done nothing wrong to you. Why are you hunting him down? He's done everything for you. He's done all your battles. You don't have to do anything. Why are you hunting him down? And, da and Saul says, it says, Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore. He swore a covenant, an oath, and he said, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And then you go a chapter later, and what does he say? Let's kill him. <laughs> he can't be trusted with his own words. Can't be trusted. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. David saying this to Saul he says again, but my hand shall not be against you. This is the second time he said it. And notice that wickedness is done by those who are wicked. Just as sin, sinful things, people, we do sinful things because we are sinners. We sin because we are sinners, not the other way around. 
I don't sin and therefore I become a sinner. No, I sin because I am a sinner. From birth, I was born and shapen in iniquity. Isn't that one of the Psalms that David wrote, inspired of the Spirit of God? And we know that to be true. We were all born with a sin nature. And we sin because we are sinners. And just as David's saying this to Saul, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. And I can't help but David is speaking some really hard truths to Saul. And no doubt this is stinging Saul a little bit. You know, David's like saying, Saul, I'm not the wicked one here. I'm the one who's running. But he speaks truth to him. Can you speak a hard word to a friend? You ought to. If they're a really good friend, you ought to be able to say hard things. And you say it with compassion, with love, and they know the difference. You know the difference. If you're angry at somebody and you want to talk something hard to them, and you come at them and go, you know what, man, you, you're just you're rotten, filthy scoundrel. And, and they're like, oh, I feel so much better. No, you've got to approach them with dignity and with love. And when you do, they know the difference when you say, listen, man, I don't... I don't want to have to tell you this, but no one's going to tell you, but I'll tell you because I love you. When you said this or when you did this, this other, you know, I, I was really hurt by that. And I don't hate you. I'm not upset with you. I just, I got to tell you the truth, you know, and then hopefully that friend will say, you know what? I was, I was being a jerk. Will you forgive me? You know, like, of course, you know, and then the friendship is restored. And see, David could speak some truth to Saul, especially in this lucid moment. Very seldom was Saul in a lucid moment like this. Remember that an evil spirit was dominating him. Some people even believe he was possessed by a demon, and at different times it would just rattle his cage and, and just infuriate him and cause him to go in rages and rampages. And what does it say in Matthew? Jesus, again, in the Beatitudes, what did he say? You will know them by their fruits. As David is having this dialogue with Saul, David in his heart's going, man, I'm listening to this guy, but in my heart, I don't believe it. David was wise. And he was wise enough to think that, I believe, because it wouldn't be long after this that Saul would be on the hunt again. And David knew, after their talk, he he continued going up into the stronghold. He wasn't going to come down and have a big, you know, come to Jesus moment and everybody, all the soldiers hug each other. I'm so sorry, man. I misunderstood you. No, it was nothing like that. David's like, great, Saul. But in his heart, he's like, I got to run. I got to keep running. It's only a matter of time before he's going to turn on me. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The obvious answer is no. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, you will know them by their fruits. We are called to be fruit inspectors. It's okay to look at a life and, and say, you know what, I, I don't know whether they know the Lord or not, but the fruit of their life is showing something pretty good. So when they tell me that they believe in Jesus, I think I believe it, right? But when you, say, when you hear somebody who's a believer, and all you see is their life marked by one bad decision after another, and then you find them, they're in drugs, and they're in alcohol, and they're in illicit relationships and they're cheating on their wives and they're taking drugs and you get every reason to go, I'm looking at the fruit and it doesn't look so good. I don't know what's going on, Laura, but that fruit is bad, right? It's okay for us to look at fruit 
and say, this looks good or doesn't look good. That's how we gauge. Because anybody can talk a big game, but when a life is changed, it demonstrates itself because what's in comes out for good or ill, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Actions are, are, are done by what comes from the heart. So David said again, my hand shall not be against you. I love Proverbs 16, verse 32. It says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And that's really kind of the way I see David. He was a a man who was wise, and he was careful. He was patient. And he was actually more in power, more in control than Saul was. Wouldn't you agree? You, can't, you couldn't trust Saul, anything he said. But David was straight as an arrow. He always knew where he was at. He made sure that if he liked you, he made it very clear. If he didn't like you, he made it very clear as well. You know, there was no deceit in David. Again, he made his mistakes, but... Therefore, the Lord... Uh, be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of your hand. You know, the Lord would ultimately judge between David and Saul. We'll see that in chapter 31 because Saul and his kids and his, and his, and his sons, they all die in battle together as it was prophesied back in the time of Eli in the very couple, first uh, in chapter 4 or 5 of, of the book that we're in now. But God would deliver David from Saul, answering the cries of his heart and the many psalms that he wrote, rich psalms during this period of his life when he was running and having a hard time. And just, again, uh, the, the anguish of soul that, that David went through that, that was working in him pounds and pounds of gold every single day as he would go through these trials. The Lord was just whittling him down to nothing to where God could build him up again. And again, don't be afraid when that happens. There's just no other way around it. I never grow when things are going well for me. But I grow when, I'm, when my face is hitting the mat and my heart is broken and I'm crying and I'm just stressed out and I'm, I'm hum- wore out and, and I'm hurting I grow in those times, and you do too. We come out of it later with a greater perspective, and we find that we grow in the process. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, and Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And, and Saul lifted up his voice, and he wept. And you can just see this man kind of crumbling before him, and I don't know if any of you have seen the, the Return of the King by, uh, the Lord, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the very last one. Um, this Saul reminds me of this uh, character called Denethor. Denethor was the steward of Gondor who had grown mad, and he was, his mind was poisoned by Sauron and Saruman. And he was just losing his mind, and, and he had these moments of lucidity, but most of the time, he, and, and there was a moment in the, in the movie, I remember, and I can just see Saul doing the same thing. He, just, he gets like this euphoric look on his face, and all of a sudden he becomes like a little kitten, <laughs> repentant and, and humble, briefly, before the lion comes out and the flame and the sword. But that's what it was for Saul. His emotions were all over the map. He was very unstable. The Bible says in James, 
A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Double-minded literally means double-spirited. It means two-spirited, two-spirited person. You, you, you have two different interests, and you could go either way, and you don't know. The wind will blow, and you'll go one way, you go the other way. Nobody really knows where you're going to go. You don't even know where you're going to go. Everyone is confused, including yourself. That's not a good place to be in. But because of his disobedience and pride, Saul was in a very bad place. He was like the Judas of the Old Testament. Because remember, if Saul could have snuffed David's life out, all the prophecies that had been talked about of David would have been thwarted, and God's word would have been null and void. Do you understand that? Just like Judas was trying to kill Jesus, he wanted, the Satan was inspiring Judas. He actually indwelt. Satan himself, not a demon, but Satan himself entered Judas. And he tried to kill Jesus, trying to thwart all the plan of God. And do you think that it was just then? No, it was about a thousand years prior to that, that the devil was doing the same thing in Saul. Trying to snuff out David, because who would ultimately come through David? Jesus Christ in the flesh. Do you think God was going to let that happen? Little did Saul know it, but he was playing chess with God. Saul was playing chess with God, and guess what? You will always lose. Because before the game even begins, days before the game even begins, God can say, checkmate. And you're like, we haven't even played the game yet. Oh, I know. But you're going to be checkmated anyway. I know the end from the beginning. I know, you, I know the moves you're going to make. You can, knight to b5. Rook to, to uh, c6. And, you're going, and the Lord can say, I can tell you exactly where you're going to go on ahead of time. In fact, you want to play that game? No, God knows. He knew it all. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I. You have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. Doesn't Paul exhort us in Romans 12, 21? He says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's exactly what David did. He overcame he overcame evil with good. Always remember that. You'll never overcome evil with evil. You'll only escalate. It will never, ever, it'll never get better. But you can overcome evil with good. And that's a lesson that we need to learn because we like, in our culture and everything, we like to, if somebody does something to you, Man, you want to poke them back. They poke you in the eye, I'm going to poke you in the eye. And then they poke you a little harder, then you poke a little harder, then they pull out a knife, and then you pull out a gun, and then you're both in trouble. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're in a squad car, shackled up together, screaming at each other. But David was overcoming evil with good. He was doing what Jesus, a thousand years later, would exhort his disciples to do. Because Jesus, remember in the uh, Beatitudes, he would say, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Oh, you got to be kidding, Lord. It feels so much better just to take some revenge. Boy, revenge is sweet for a few moments until you get caught. It never pays off. 
It never, ever pays off. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And that's exactly what David did. He waited, and God took care of Saul. And David didn't have anything to do with it. Be that innocent, folks. Let's be that innocent in everything we do, put our hands to. Let's be that way. Just be innocent children. And let the Lord take care of all this other stuff. It's not easy to do. It takes a heart, it takes a more, a stronger of a character of a person to walk away from a fight than to engage in it, realizing it's not really going to solve anything. Saul says, you are more righteous than I, you know, for you have rewarded me with good and I have rewarded you with evil. This was a, certainly a lucid moment for, for Saul. And again, it didn't last because we know, like I said before, in two chapters from now, he's going to be coming after him again. Just that demon is just going to rile him up again, and he's going to be like a wound-up toy. You know, just, you can see the devil just cranking that little key in the back of him and just getting Saul all agitated, and he's like, man, I just I got to go after this guy. And have you ever seen somebody like that? You can actually see them getting wound up. I've, I see this happening. You know, you're watching somebody, and you, 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 know, you don't even hear them. You can see it like on a, on a video or something, and before long, they're just, you know, they're pacing, and they're wringing their hands, and next thing you know, they just explode. And it's like, oh, I knew that was happening. Knew that was coming. But do you have a temper? Do you have a problem with anger? A lot of people do. If you've got a problem with, a, with your temper, with anger, have you really gone to the mat with the Lord with that and said, Lord, this, this is not becoming of a child of God that you've called me to be. I can't, I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to be, you know, reaching out in anger toward my wife, to my kids. I don't want to be yelling and screaming and cursing at people. I don't want to be picking things up and throwing them across the room because I don't get my way. Lord, would you please deal with me on these issues? Have you prayed that prayer? Unless the old man is crucified, the flesh will always rear its ugly head again and again. There's only one thing to do with the flesh, and that's to crucify it. That's what Jesus says. That's what Paul says. The Spirit of God says, crucify your old man and the deeds thereof. Are you involved in fornication? Crucify it. Are you involved in malice and wrath? And the, the list goes on. It's a pretty ugly list. Are you dealing with any of those things? Crucify them before they crucify you. Because it will. It'll take, it'll take dominion over you if you don't take dominion over it. And the Spirit of God in you is able. You have to fight the good fight. Don't ever give up. It's never easy, but you fight and you fight and you fight. And then you pray and you pray a lot more. And you play it a lot harder. And then you fight and you don't give an inch. Don't give an inch of your flesh and to the enemy of your soul who wants to just destroy you. Don't be a soul. The flesh is never satisfied. Proverbs 27, and we'll stop here in just a few moments. It says, hell and destruction are never full. In other words, they're never satisfied. They're never satiated. They always want more. Death and hell always wants more. It wants to bring more under. And it's just constantly pulling people under. Because the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, isn't it? 
And he says in verse 18, And you, shall, you have shown me this day, you have dealt well with me, but when the Lord delivered you, delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? And, and, and in verse 20, Saul admits to David, And now I know that you shall surely be king. You know, because David was exemplifying all of these kingly traits. These are the, this is the kind of behavior that behooves a king. Saul in his heart knew he should have been demonstrating these things. They should have been a part of him, but they weren't, and he didn't even know how to get there. And it, it's too far now for Saul. He, he, he'd gotten so deep into this whole thing that he was just on the, he was on a, 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 a he was on a, a train going headlong into destruction, and, and, and because of his own heart, he, just, he would not repent. He would not repent. At any time, he could have said, you know what, Lord, I'm done with this. But he never did. He just continued. Therefore, swear now, and I love this. Saul says to David, Swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from, a, from my father's house. And so David swore to Saul, and Saul went home. Notice, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. They're not dumb. They know what's coming in spite of all the flowery language. But notice, Saul asked David to make, to, to, to make an oath. Does that oath that he just said, doesn't that sound familiar? Do you recall that that's the very same oath that Jonathan and David had made? In chapter 18, verse 3, in chapter 20, verse, I forget what it was. In chapter 20, he says the same thing. David and Jonathan made the same oath to one another. And so it was very easy for David to look at Saul and says, you know, Saul, uh, he didn't say this to Saul, but in David's heart, he's saying, I've already, I've already made this vow to your son. I'm not going to come after you guys. Whatever the Lord has here, whatever he's going to do, I don't even know yet, but whatever, whenever, whenever it is that I come into power, when, 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 when I come into the kingdom, I'm not going to hunt down your seed. I'm not going to hunt down, and, he, and David didn't. He let somebody else do it. There's a, some men of Gabeah you're going to see later. But David didn't put his hand to any of his sons or his grandsons. But he did take Mephibosheth under his wing. We'll see that later. So let's um, prepare our hearts for communion. We owe everything to you, God. Lord, you will never be indebted to us. Lord, but we will be forever indebted to you for all that you've done, Lord. Uh, uh, something that none of us could... Um, uh, make happen, Lord. It's just not possible. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross for us, Lord. And, um, and Lord, for the communion that we have as we take the, the bread and as we take the cup, Lord, we are mindful of your body that was broken. Lord, in our place, Lord, you broke, you were broken Lord, your blood was poured out in our place. And again, Lord, not any ordinary blood, the very blood of Almighty God. And so, Lord, what can we say to these things? What can we say but thank you? And Lord, we want to offer our life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake.
In those days, they would take a, a loaf of bread and they would just pass it around. You know, a big uh, challah bread or whatever. They would just tear, tear off a piece and pass it around. And Wouldn't that be fun to do during a pandemic? And put it online so the CDC could see us all drinking from the same chalice. You know, the Holy Grail. Tearing off a piece of bread and just stuffing it in our mouth and Maybe even just tearing it off with our teeth and passing it on, you know. And, but Lord, we, <laughs> forgive me. Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Let's take it. In that culture, whenever they would share a meal together, it was a very intimate thing. In some cultures, even in our own Whenever we have somebody over for dinner, it's a pretty intimate thing. But in the Middle East and back in this time, it was exceptionally uh, something it meant a lot more than what you and I take of it. And so when we do this together, folks, we are, we are sharing in, in communion together. We are basically acknowledging, we're acknowledging together. Go figure that a, a, a people group like us from all different races, backgrounds, everything, that we can come together and we can unite under this. Where in the world can that happen? It doesn't even happen in the Fortune 500 companies. But we can all be here and we can take communion because we serve the same Lord. We can unite under his banner, under him. Think of the miracle that that is. And that's what we get to do. That's the joy and the privilege that we get to do. And we just ingested the tokens, the symbols of what has occurred for the salvation of our souls. That needed to happen, and we took this meal, in a sense, together, and there's no in, more intimate thing that we could do as a body of believers than to do what we just done, to do what we just did, right? So let's stand together, let's pray. And I'm very thankful and glad that we get to do this. Aren't you? Say amen if you do. I, I agree. I'm, I feel the same way. And uh, so, Father, we, we, very, we are very thankful people, God, just to live in a country where we can do this. And, Lord, other countries, other nations, Lord, they, to do what we're doing now would be treason. It would be, it would be against the law. We could be taken away into some gulag somewhere and never be heard from again. And yet, Lord, you've given us this privilege in this country. Lord, how we thank you for this country, how we pray for this country, God, that you would right the wrongs, Lord, that you'd straighten us out. We need your help, God. We're desperate for you. The church, we're desperate for you. Certainly the country needs a lot of help, Lord, but we need you. So, Lord, help us tonight. Help us tomorrow. Bless, us, bless our day tomorrow, God. Order our steps, Lord. And we just trust you for all that you're going to do. We love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Have a blessed evening and drive carefully.